0: It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom buying for New Yorkers, the city steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Katie Honan, and today I will be speaking with Karim Walker, an organizing and outreach specialist at the Urban Justice Center. He's lived in New York City since 2015 and is formerly homeless, and he's going to talk about his work and the challenges he hears from those he works with, People seeking affordable housing in one of the most expensive cities in the world, a challenge he also faced himself. This conversation comes as the city continues to grapple with the killing of Jordan Neely on a subway car. Karim, you told the New York Times there was no empathy on that train car. So can you talk about this? What you see is a lack of empathy for people experiencing homelessness, what you yourself faced, and any other challenges they have in New York City?
1: Folks on the street tend to have. There's this uh, image in the minds of New Yorkers and across the country that homeless folks are somehow at best to be pitied, and at worst to be reviled. They might be seen as someone who, as uh, somehow responsible for their own fate, for their life on the streets. Um, and that's not always the case. I mean, recent studies have shown that most Americans are one paycheck away from being homeless themselves. And I think that in the deep recesses of a lot of people's minds, they know that their own economic status is not as solid as they may perceive it, as they may think it could be. And when it comes to the challenges of finding permanent housing, few people find it harder than those who are street homeless. I mean, in New York City, getting a path to homelessness is just that. It's a process. It's a path. Um, mm-hmm. The city might have you go to one of the uh, municipal or privately run shelters, for where you might be shuffled from one place to another every six or eight months. I know that's happened to me as someone who has spent time in the shelter system. Um, who spent two years in the shelter system, actually, it can be very, very frustrating because you have to start. Because once you get transferred from one shelter to another for a variety of reasons, you have to start the process all over again. The housing specialists, some of the shelters don't even have housing specialists, from my understand, and the ones that do are not particularly very effective. They'll basically force you to take the first thing they can find for you, and if you don't like it, you can get transferred. In fact, that's kind of sort of what happened to me, but I'll get to that later. Um, And then life on the streets itself is, to quote Langston Hughes, it's no crystal stair. It's very very difficult to put it nicely. Um, there's the threat of violence, harassment, maybe even uh, maybe even murder, as is the case of Jordan Neely. Um, as we know, Jordan was put in a it looks like a chokehold or a sleeper hold uh, rather, and was held onto for 15 minutes, and that's just. One of the extreme instances, but it does happen, of what can happen to those who live on the streets, for those who have no place to go, no place to call home.
0: So Karim, um, you know, you alluded to this a little bit, but if you want to talk briefly about what you experienced being shuffled from from shelter to shelter, and, and I will just today, as of today, as we record this on, on May 8th, there are 78,573 people living um, within the city's shelter census and that obviously there's been an asylum secret crisis that's inflated those numbers um but it is thousands of people accounted for in shelters not to mention the street homeless population um but Krim, you want to talk about your journey through the shelter system and what you experienced
1: right um i first entered the shelter system in july of 2015 um i was placed in an assessment shelter in greenpoint brooklyn where i was where i I ended up staying for approximately four months. It was originally supposed to be a three-week stay. And they first transferred me to a shelter up in the Bronx, New York, near the border to Westchester County. Uh, it was a mica shelter, mental illness, chemical dependency, chemical addiction shelter, where I had no history of, uh, of chemical dependency, which is ironic. Um... I was there for approximately five, almost six months before being transferred to a shelter in the Lower East Side, where I stayed up until Thanksgiving of 2016, then was transferred to a shelter out in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It was that shelter that placed me in, uh that basically arranged for me to move into a room in an apartment. So I didn't have full possession of the apartment. Um, I shared it with two other gentlemen.
0: And how I know you've spoken about your use of the city FEPS, which is a voucher program. Right. I mean, was it through a voucher? Is that how you got placed in that room?
1: Correct. That's how I got placed because at the time it was uh, it wasn't FEPS though. It was the uh, city's old Link Link system, and almost immediately we knew that there were problems with the unit. We had leaky uh, leaky ceilings. We had a pest problem. Loose electrical sockets all over the uh, unit. And when I tried to get repairs done, the landlords were basically non-responsive, or let's say they were working on it, they were working on it, they were hem and haw. Yeah. I finally got my, I finally filed a housing part on my own to get repairs done. won a judgment in um, October of 2018, by this time, this is October 2018. And about six weeks later, six or seven weeks later, they turned around and started eviction proceedings against me and uh, a holdover proceedings against me uh mind you they never did that with any of the other tenants in the unit so come july 2019 i'm homeless again Mm -hmm. lost everything that i owned pretty much except the clothes on my back that's when i went into a few months later i as the pandemic began to kick into high gear in new york state i was able to get a stabilization bed through the, through the Safety Net Project at the Urban Justice Center, and they and by this time, and a few months later, was able to get into my own apartment where I've been since uh, December of 2020.
0: Wow,
1: the path is not an easy one; it's an arduous one. And the only reason why I was able to get into this apartment the way I was was because I had already filed the application back in, in the summer of 2018, just before filing my housing part. So yeah, it was a roughly two. It was about two two and a half years before I get uh, before I got approved.
0: Wow And I know working with the Urban Justice Center now you're working for them. Um, was that something you sought out I guess with, with the process of dealing you know of, of dealing with how, I guess I presume they were helpful and now you're working. So if you want to talk a little bit about the population that you're working with, is it shelter homeless or is it street homeless? And I'm sure it, it people appreciate working with someone who has also experienced what they're experiencing.
1: Uh, most of the people I work with are street and subway homeless. And a lot of them are long-term, like at least three years or longer. Some of them have been talking uh, street and subway homeless for uh, more than a decade in some cases. But um, almost all of them have had the same – I hear the same stories. They don't go into the – shelter. some of them have been in the shelter system and don't want to go back. Some of them have never been in the shelter system, but those folks who have gone in and, are, and have heard the horror stories, that go along with them. Um, they're either they're not safe, they're not sanitary. A lot of them just function as an extension of the prison system. You have to be out by a certain time, you have to be in by a certain time, you have very little privacy. They may say, uh, we're there to ensure your safety. There's really no guarantee of that. And there have been recent, and in recent years, there have been issues where folks have been attacked in so in uh homeless shelters um i believe there was one back in 2015 shortly after i had entered the bronx the shelter in the bronx where a gentleman not not at that shelter but at another shelter had been attacked had been attacked and murdered because he was accused of stealing someone's iphone wow
0: one question, you know, when you're working with people who've been living on the streets for years, um, what's your kind of approach and, and what is your, your role in working with them? Are you just going up to them and saying, hey, I'm here if you need help or I don't know what your process is when you're working with people? Um, because I'm sure people, like, you've, like you said, are sort of maybe reluctant to even talk to someone who uh, is in any – whether it's a nonprofit role as yourself or even a governmental position and trying to help.
1: Part of my job is to start restoring a little bit of trust in people. Um and that's not easy And when it comes to the street and subway homeless. Um, trust is not is a more of a luxury than it is a necessity. Mm. Um one of the great things that we have is a partnership with the company Bombas, the sock company. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm always and I always try to make sure that I have several pairs of socks. That way folks can, because that's one of the as they build, as Bombas builds, is the number one requested item in homeless shelters. So it helps get the conversation rolling with what they're looking for in terms of housing, how they're working, um, how other outreach teams in New York City are working with them, um, if they're working with them, um, their interactions with the police and the Department of Sanitation, um, especially, and that's especially vital when it comes to sweeps. And oh, eventually they will be there will be a sweep notice at that location at some point, um, which have been highly ineffective and have the potential for violence again, this time by the state.
0: Yeah. And do you target specific subway stations or different locations? I just, just get a sense of. Practically, how you're kind of approaching your job and, and how you're interacting
1: with people. Uh, for the most part, I focus in Manhattan um, and the lower, basically, the lower two thirds of Manhattan. Um, so, from think of it from basically South Ferry to the Upper West Side, the southern tip of the Upper West Side. So, it, so that requires, I guess, a little bit of a change in strategy because folks in the Upper West Side, for example some of uh, the folks I speak to let's say on 14th street have been street homeless for several years so they might be a little less trusting they may be a little less trusting someone like me especially if they don't know that I've been homeless because I don't go out and tell them that I'm that I used to be homeless um though I think I though that might help um and even and to be honest even when I was even when I was homeless I didn't always look it aside from my hair maybe <laughs> <laughs> um but uh the tactics do change depending on locations and it requires me to be a little more understandable of where i am.
0: Yeah. And i guess you know we can go back to you know how we started the conversation and and your reaction to what was what initial news reports uh, you know vigilante kills mentally ill homeless person on a subway and then the video that was released. um, If you want to just share your initial thoughts to hearing that, I don't know if you watched part or all of the video that was released um, of, of him dying and on the subway car, but, you know, especially with who you work with and your own experiences, if you want to talk about what your initial
1: reaction was. Because I work with homeless people out of respect for them, I couldn't bring myself to watch that video. Um, that was just, that would have been way too painful for me to watch. And as I said, in the New York times, there was no empathy on that train car. Jordan Neely came in there reportedly saying that he was hungry. He was thirsty and really didn't care. It it sounds like not one person offered him a bottle of water or half a sandwich. Not one person offered to say, what can I do to help you? But as soon as he was attacked, pulled out the f- and put and, and, and started grabbing video of his final moments. Again, there was no empathy, there was no empathy there either. No one told his alleged killer, please let him go. He's harmless now. He didn't attack anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. And that's what really angers me the most about it that they saw this man dying and nobody did anything to stop him from dying. No one did anything to stop his alleged killer from from hurting him any further. And I think that is part of what we see, that's part of what I see in my line of work, um, a lack of empathy from a lot of New Yorkers. Now, that being said, I don't, think that lack of empathy, that lack of compassion is, in, is born out of any kind of malice or any kind of vicious, uh, vicious ill will towards home, street, home, street and subway homeless folks. I think it's born out of helplessness, a sense of helplessness, because what can we do to solve a problem that is so intractable as homelessness? And the answer, and I think the best answer is, is housing homeless individuals. We have more than enough vacant apartments in New York City to house every homeless person. And I believe multiple studies have shown that it is much cheaper to house homeless folks than to leave them homeless. This is not a, this is, not, it's not rocket science. It's It's not even radical in any way. It's a very plausible, very feasible, very viable solution if we have the political will to do it.
0: Yeah. I do want to get back to that political will, but I will ask first, you know, when you say you don't blame malice on the part of strap hangers, you know, the the universal term for subway riders or or other people when you're in an enclosed space, seeing someone who is experiencing homelessness and then also maybe is not well mentally and is perhaps threatening you. I mean, that's sort of the question you have. And, and you, you the, the royal you, right? When people are talking about the two sides of this, not that there are two sides, but you have some people on the maybe far right side saying this person was threatening people. Of course, there's no evidence of that. Um, but there are instances of violent homeless people. We saw what happened with um, Michelle Go, who was thrown in front yes. of a train. And that's something that's brought up. So how do you balance, I'm not saying it's an either or, um, or or empathy should only be reserved for certain types of people but I do want to get your take on there are people who legitimately feel there have been times I felt frightened on the train it hasn't been for a long time but it's just been an in experiencing certain people who are clearly not well I just wanted to get your take on on, on that and, and and your thoughts on that
1: what happened to Michelle Go was a tragedy no one will deny that but how often does that happen? I'm not discounting her death in any fashion. I'm just trying to minimize it in any fashion. But in the minds of many, some folks think that we'll get the idea that almost every homeless person is either addicted to, has a drug, has a chemical addiction or, uh, or alcohol addiction, or they're somehow mentally ill. Now, we know That's not always the case. Um, There are quite a few folks who are housed in unstable housing who do have uh, who also have those those uh, those struggles. Who struggle with their mental health, especially in uh, in the era of the pandemic. We've had folks who've struggled with chemical dependency who are stably housed. So it's not just to paint a broad, you can't just paint uh, all homeless folks with a broad stroke yeah. and say they all have some kind of mental illness or chemical and they should be locked up because it's that type of thinking that really allow something like Mayor Adams's initiative back in late last year to involuntarily lock up uh, homeless folks without any kind of proof that they're either a threat to themselves or others and now that is a lack of empathy and that is that was born out of malice because that is not a way that's not the way to treat people
0: so to this question of you know back to political will i want to get your take on two things the city's mental health initiatives as you described funding or maybe even lack of funding for certain services and then also um this lack of creation of affordable housing around the city and even the state, you know, to a larger degree, affordable housing is a crisis for so many New Yorkers, not just those who are homeless. So your take on both those things, both funding and and programs available for those experiencing mental health challenges and then also affordable housing.
1: Okay. Well, the city's mental health initiatives. um, Where do I begin? I'm not sure where the mayor's mind was when he went with this because this is it, because this is not again, as I said, this is not the way to treat people. Um just force them off the subways without offering them any kind of help, or the best that you could offer is some kind of shelter where there's no guarantee of their welfare. Um I remember reading a couple art of uh, a few months ago that on a tweet that i believe was issued from either the department of homeless services or the department of, uh of the mayor's office itself saying how they had a how outreach workers had had a conversation with a man at one uh, of the subway stop, station stops on 42nd street and that right then and there poof the guy decided he was going to go into a shelter and get his life together there was no kind of follow-up there was no i, I think a lot of this is uh is really for show that the city is doing something making it look like the do- the city's doing something but i'd like to counter that with the fact that there were over two thousand available supportive housing units those are units for those who don't know what supportive housing is it's regular style apartments but with heavy social services attached to it we have approximately two thousand apartments supportive housing apartments last year alone 16 street homeless individuals got apartments got those types of apartments 16 in 2022 yeah that's yeah that's pretty that's that that's a that's not just abysmal that's horrific and the reasons why behind that, um, I think, could be the subject for a later podcast. I hope, and it also goes part and parcel with the affordable housing crisis that we have. Um, as I said, it took me two and, approximately two and a half years to get my apartment after I had applied for it um, to get to get approved. And I think I was one of the lucky ones because there's some because there are some folks who applied to dozens, if not hundreds, of apartments. Apartment lotteries and never even get past the first stage, which is a testament to how many, how few apartments are being built and how many people want them or need them. And when we talk about affordable, affordable is a very is a very slippery term to define because what what might be affordable in one in one neighborhood could be not so affordable in another. So we have so it's uh it's that it's a very much so all these create kind of like a perfect storm yeah, for the state of homelessness in New York State, in New York City.
0: And and Karim, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but you know, I know um leading back with what we started with, with this idea of of empathy who are experiencing challenges. Um you know, for listeners who, again, people have a lot of different thoughts and everyone has, everyone comes into everything with their own life experiences, their own interpretations, their own, um, challenges. Um, what's one thing you want people to know when they're, you know, they see someone on the street or they, you said it's either, uh, I guess it starts with pity. That's the least of it, but what other kind of things do you want people to think of when they see someone on the street who's experiencing a challenge and, um, and, and maybe some help in, in interacting with them that doesn't come from necessarily only a place of pity or, or, or hatred or dislike, but, but some other more empathetic
1: place. See these folks as human beings, just like you are, have a little respect for that. Um, I'm not saying you should give them a hundred dollar bill every time you can. Um, but remember these just like you, they had struggles in their life, and they're doing the best they can, just like you are doing the best you can to get through the get through life. Um, don't feel don't feel so quick to call the police, who are not really that equipped to handle uh, any kind of issues surrounding homelessness, but if you I mean, if you have some if you have an extra if you have a extra bottle of water or an extra or a half a sandwich help yourself to that help yourself to help offer it to them it's not going to remind them that they that there are people out there who still care I was like even if you don't know their name just remind them that there are people out there who are, who still care that's what I wanted to say
0: Karim, Karim Walker, you're organizing an outreach specialist of the Urban Justice Center, um, the Safety Net Project. And I really appreciate you coming to coming on and talking with us. You know, I know that this is, the the killing of Jordan Neely really reverberates to a lot of issues within the city, but I like to talk to the people who are actually involved in it. So I appreciate you coming on. It's
1: and my thank pleasure. You. How was it? How'd I do? It?
0: You did great. You did great. I, you know, I always wonder how I do on these things too, but uh, you did great.
1: Earth. F. FAQ
2: This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/give if you'd like to pitch in. We are an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at Popula.com. Our host this episode was Katie Honan. Harry Siegel is our executive producer, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimara. Thank you to our guest, Karim Walker, an organizing and outreach specialist at the Urban Justice Center. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.